0: In Mosin at Large, episode 75, our election season is over with a resounding victory for Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. The International Council on English Braillers meeting will find out how you can listen in. There's feedback on the recent Apple event, self-driving cars, and more.
1: Mosin at Large Podcast.
0: You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full and at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long. And to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, It's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. It is always good to be back with you. I know you have so much choice, so I really do appreciate you choosing this little show whenever you do tune in. I'm doing this on very little sleep. I guess I have a nerdy disposition. It's true. I've concluded this about myself. I'm into technology, so I really get into it. I like to understand it and study it and read lots about it. And I'm similarly inclined towards certain music, particularly the Beatles. And as many of you will know, having listened to my stuff over the years, I am also a political nerd. Just as some people follow all sorts of sports all around the world, I follow a lot of politics around the world, a lot of elections, the process, the impacts of the political process on people's lives enthralls me. And so we have just had our election in New Zealand. It is Sunday morning as this show goes out in New Zealand and election days in New Zealand are on a Saturday. The results start coming in at 7pm. That's when the polls close. And the Electoral Commission counts the votes that have been cast early. And we had a massive turnout, about I think 60% of New Zealanders who were eligible to vote, voted early this time. Really extraordinary. What that means is that just after seven o'clock, at about 10 minutes past seven, we got the first results. And really, while the numbers shifted fractionally, they didn't shift very much. So by 10 past seven, those first numbers came in and we basically knew what the result was going to be. It is a far cry. From the election processes that many countries have. Now, we have a proportional representation system in New Zealand. The reason for it is that in the 1980s and 1990s, politicians took New Zealand on very extreme political paths that people didn't really feel they voted for. And once a government under our old first past the post system, like the one they have in Britain, because we inherited it really from Britain. Once a government is elected, they're sovereign. They can do anything that they like. And eventually, the New Zealand people said, enough is enough. We had a referendum on a new electoral system, and we adopted the German model called mixed member proportional. Now, the idea of the system is that it encourages coalition governments. It is very hard for one political party to gain so much of the vote that they can govern without the help of other parties. So it gives you a lot of choice in terms of who you can vote for, and it stops extremists. It stops people from doing really crazy, radical things. It encourages consensus. Well, last night, for the first time since we've had this voting system, Labour, under its leader Jacinda Ardern, have acquired over 50% of the seats in Parliament in their own right. What is amazing about this result, too, is that when you count the Labour Party vote and the Green Party vote, when you add those together, you have 74 seats at the moment out of a 120-seat Parliament from the centre-left block, There has been a massive swing in this country to the centre-left Many people who correspond with me mentioned Jacinda Ardern. She's an international celebrity. She was a serious contender for the Nobel Peace Prize because of her response to the Christchurch Mosque atrocities in 2019. She is legendary for the way that she has led New Zealand through the COVID-19 crisis. And the New Zealand public have rewarded her soundly with an extraordinary mandate. As I've said on this show before, it's really easy for blind people to participate in our elections. I don't like early voting just in case something happens that changes my vote. I'm not a particularly, you know, shall we say tribal voter. I do look at what the parties have on offer and at performance and I cast my vote. So I didn't vote until election day, but it was easy. It was all over in about a three minute phone call and I've explained the process there in uh, previous editions of the show, but it was really straightforward. And I count myself very fortunate that we have such an easy way for blind people to vote. There's no doubt that the COVID-19 response that Jacinda Adern has led has played a significant part in this result. There have been some problems with delivery from her government on other areas that really matter to people. Houses are very expensive. There's a supply problem in this country. There are various other things that really got a bit blocked up. One of the reasons it is suggested is because it was a three-headed coalition in the previous Ardern administration. One of the parties involved in that coalition was a centre-right party, or maybe a centre party called New Zealand First, and they have been completely eliminated from Parliament in this election. So there will be enormous pressure on Jacinda Ardern and her government to do things that are really transformational. And certainly, from where I sit, I will be looking for some very significant outcomes in terms of disability as well. What I thought I would do, though, is play you some highlights from Jacinda Ardern's victory speech, because I must say I heard the speech and my heart was swelling with pride. Obviously, our politics aren't squeaky clean and people in New Zealand who enter political life are not saints. But the quality of the dialogue here in New Zealand that we have is much better than some. And I just count myself very proud to live in a country where that is the case. And I think some of the things that the Prime Minister says really illustrate that. So here are some excerpts from her speech that she gave just a few hours ago as this show is being put together.
2: Thank you to the many people who gave us their vote who trusted us to continue with leading New Zealand's recovery, who back to the plan we are already rolling out, and to those amongst you who may not have supported Labour before. And the results tell me there were a few of you. (laughs) To you, to you I say thank you. We will not take your support for granted. And I can promise you we will be a party that governs for every New Zealander. And governing for every New Zealander has never been so important, more than it has been now. We are living in an increasingly polarized world, a place where more and more people have lost the ability to see one another's point of view. I hope that this election, New Zealand has shown that this is not who we are, that as a nation we can listen and we can debate. After all, we are too small to lose sight of other people's perspective. Elections aren't always elections aren't always great at bringing people together but they also don't need to tear one another apart and in times of crisis i believe new zealand has shown that and so again i say thank you
0: jacinda adern just 40 years old she was born in july 1980 she has a two-year-old daughter who she gave birth to while being Prime Minister, she is quite something. I think most New Zealanders are pretty jolly proud of her. Hi, Jonathan, says this email. I am Liel from Israel. I am commenting on the mail of one of your listeners about iOS 14. I have updated to iOS 14 and am experiencing the delay issues with voiceover. It feels most significant in text typing. If I type, VoiceOver reads to me the letters that I've landed on, but when I type, I'm hearing the keyboard sound before hearing VoiceOver reading the letter. I'm typing fast, and it's slowing me down with my iPhone. I've restored all my settings, and that has helped a bit, but it is still the case when typing in text fields, and I'm using an iPhone XS. Thanks so much, Liel. If you're using an iPhone XS, I mean, that is not really an old phone at all, is it? So all I can say is hopefully we will see a fix for this soon from Apple. Brian Gaff says, now I have played with iOS 14 a bit more, and after a long call to Apple accessibility, I am happier with it. Quite why it would not accept my password or code into the App Store is still a mystery, but... Since it's now successfully reset via the website, it's been behaving again. They really are very patient. One odd bug that is mildly annoying is an intermittent caps lock stuck on iMessage text entry. Whether on built-in keyboard or Bluetooth, there seems to be nothing that causes it. It just does it sometimes. I have made Mushroom FM work on the iPhone in two ways. Both do involve MyTuna Radio, i.e. if you launch the Soup Drinker app, you can ask her to play it as you would on the Echo itself. But I also downloaded the free app on the phone, and since it now labels the search and other buttons with the new feature, it's relatively easy to play it and allocate it to a favorite. Now all some clever person needs to do is make a Siri shortcut to do this automatically. It is a little sluggish at labeling, though, and it needs you to be a bit more plodding. Likewise, I too notice a bit of lag when typing this message with the keyboard echo compared to the previous iOS, but it's marginal, really. Not tried anything too clever yet, and I do not see the point of the library, either Bah oh, Humbug. Well, the good news is, Brian, that you can be the clever person who creates a MyTuner Radio shortcut, because MyTuner Radio does support Siri shortcuts. I actually deleted the app because it did have some accessibility issues when I last looked, and when Siri came out with all the great support that now seems to be vanishing, I didn't see a need for it. Now that that's going away. I will probably get my TuneIn Radio back and recreate all my Siri shortcuts that launch different radio stations that I can now no longer hear via the built-in Apple Music support. Now, there's another way to deal with this as well. Luis has submitted this. He says another method of playing radio stations in iOS 14 is to use Google Assistant. You can ask the assistant to play any station in TuneIn Radio. Furthermore... You can create a shortcut to speed up the process. By the way, I have noticed that recently the OKGOOGLE shortcut no longer activates the assistant microphone, but instead I get a message telling me what I would like to ask Google. In my opinion, this is a regression from the previous method because Google no longer speaks the result but instead you have to read it with voiceover. Is there a means to revert this behavior and use the original method in which the microphone was activated once the shortcut was enabled? I've seen various bizarre bits of behavior with shortcuts in iOS 14, Luis, that I'm not a fan of. In terms of this one, I think the answer is don't invoke it with Siri. So what I've done is I've assigned a back double tap So a double tap of the back of the phone to that shortcut, and that does actually invoke the Google microphone. It appears to be that if you invoke the shortcut with Siri, it doesn't. But if you invoke it with some sort of keyboard command or a gesture, then it works the way it used to. Go figure, as the Americans like to say. Now, Don Barrett says, hi, Jonathan. I loved the discussion on podcast 73 you all had about LiDAR for me. I will get a new phone when Touch ID and LiDAR are available on a smaller device, hopefully next year. I envision a time when a walking GPS will get you to your destination and the LiDAR will kick in to take you right to the front steps or revolving door, etc. That will be awesome. Can you imagine LiDAR in Soundscape or a similar program? All good things to look forward to. Anyway, a million thanks for all you do. Thank you so much, Don. Rebecca Skipper says the Apple event is not exciting. Apple is starting to feel like all those other computer manufacturers. Sometimes you do not need the latest specs, and I was very disappointed when the Touch ID wasn't introduced. 5G and advanced cameras are not enough, and it sounds like iPhone 12 mini isn't much smaller than the SE. Thanks to Mosin at Large and the great descriptions given by Heidi Mosen, Oh, she's Taylor now. Taylor. Ooh. If you don't like Face ID, says Rebecca, please consider the iPhone SE 2020. In normal times, I don't actually mind Face ID at all, Rebecca. Obviously, if you've got a face mask on, uh, it's a bit of a challenge right now. But normally, I really do quite like Face ID. And the iPhone SE 2020 is too small for me. I wouldn't want to take the battery hits of migrating from a Mac's phone to an AC phone. I love the battery life of my present iPhone.
3: Hi, Jonathan. It's John Gassman. And uh, just quickly regarding the Apple iPhone unveiling, I didn't know that there was an audio description at all. I listened to it while working from the Apple website, and so I just got the same broadcast that everybody else did. But it was interesting to then tune in to your podcast and hear a lot of what I had missed out on. And I think I'm going to get the iPhone, probably just the 12, not the Pro or Pro Max. I currently have an iPhone 8, and so it will be about three years since my last confession, I mean iPhone. Um, so uh, it's probably about time to, to get a new one. I was holding off just to see if they released 5G, and I'm with a Verizon, so I probably might benefit from 5G. We'll see. Uh, the the camera is, you know, nice, but it's not going to do a lot for me. But I, uh, the main thing that gravitated me toward potentially considering the iPhone 12 is that I'm still working. I'm probably going to retire in a year or two, and so I can afford to do it at the moment. I don't know if I will be able to afford it on a regular basis after I retire. So I figured, you know, one more big tech splurge. For the iPhone 12. The one thing that I, in addition to all that, that I have to get used to will be no home button. And that never stopped me from potentially moving on to a 10 or 11 or 12. It was just, I just didn't do it. And I think I still have your unboxing of an iPhone 10 on a blind side podcast several years ago. I'm assuming that would be the, still the most accurate description of how to set up my facial recognition on the 12 unless there's something that's uh, even better that's come out since then and if, maybe you can make, make a suggestion in that regard. Uh, if not, I'll find the uh, old podcast and use that uh, whenever it is that I buy my iPhone 12 which I would imagine might be end of year or very early next year. We'll see how things go but uh, really enjoyed the podcast and the iPhone unveiling and it sounds very interesting. So it'll be fun to, to see how that all works out. And thank you again, and Judy Dixon and Michael and uh, Heidi for all of the great description.
0: Good on you, John. You will enjoy that, I'm sure. Because if you're going from an 8, which had the same processor as the iPhone 10, then you will notice some performance improvements. You'll notice some camera improvements. And of course, if you are on Verizon in a pretty big area like where you are, I suspect you're going to have good mmWave 5G. I hope so because I'd be really keen to hear any speed tests that you do when you get your Verizon 5G up and running. So do keep us posted and good on you for treating yourself to a new iPhone. I reminded that yes, that episode of The Blind Side is still available and shows you the Face ID process and The Blind Side now has a separate feed for a wee while We had the blind side and in the arena and Mosin at large all in the one podcast feed. When we migrated to the gloriousness that is our Pinecast podcast host, we were able to separate them. So if you search for the blind side and perhaps add my name to it, you will find all 100 odd blind side episodes in their own podcast feed. And you'll find that iPhone 10 unboxing and face ID demonstration in there. John says, what? What? A new iPhone is not in your immediate future. I am appalled, shocked, stupendously astonished. I was under the impression that you would pre-order the iPhone 12 Pro Max 256 gigabyte as soon as pre-orders opened. Will wonders never cease. Well, they will cease if you listen to episode 73, John, because I said even then I wouldn't be ordering an iPhone this year and went into my reasons for not doing so. If I were going to order it, it would be the 512. It wouldn't be the 256. I am looking, he continues, at getting an iPhone 12 soon, getting the pre-order in soon. Mate, if you haven't got the pre-order in already, you're going to be delayed because my understanding is that the iPhone 12s are already sold out, the ones that are available, and there is slippage in the shipping date. But that's okay. Good things come to those who wait. John continues, the last iPhone I had was the 6S model, so it is quite a jump. Oh, yes, you'll love it. I was not so impressed about the Apple event, apart from the 5G cameras and new charging process. The difference between this and the previous models aren't many. So in my opinion, if you have an iPhone 11, stick with it. But if you have an older model, an upgrade might be good. I am looking forward to the delivery
1: in the future. Hello, Jonathan and Bonnie and all the listening audience. Mike Moran here. Jonathan, I have to tell you, you know, I'm easily rattled. You know this. My nerves are shot most of the time. I'll tell you things just, it's a good thing I'm not a member of the Flat Earth Society because I would go right over the edge. I know it. I just know it. Here's the thing that bugs me. When I answer my phone, my iOS phone, with the update, it talks. I'm listening to somebody try to talk to me on the phone, and my phone is talking away. It happens sometimes. It's worse if I'm in Facebook. But it just happens at random. I never know when that's going to happen. Do you... In your infinite wisdom, have any ideas how to fix this problem other than tossing the phone over the edge of the Grand Canyon, which I'd rather not do. First of all, I'm not in Arizona. Second of all, I figured out I wouldn't have a phone. How's that? I might be a little slow on the uptake, but I figured that much out.
0: Well, that's interesting, Mike. I don't know how you are answering the phone. That would be my first question. If you're doing the magic tap, a two-finger double tap, which is the easiest way to answer the phone, and you're hearing chatter, that's unfortunate. I guess if it's a persistent problem, one thing you could do is perform a mute gesture, like a speech-off gesture, which is a three-finger double tap to turn speech off. I guess you could try that.
4: Hello, Jonathan. This is Peggy Kern. I am definitely planning on ordering a new phone this year i've been very happy until recently with my 10r and now with all the frustrations of it and the watch and the health app and everything talking back and forth i think i'm ready to just kind of start from scratch and plus the battery on this phone just recently seems to be going down way faster than it used to so much so that I don't use it as much as I did with my Braille keyboard because it seems to, after a while, the phone gets hot. And uh, I just thought, that's probably putting more strain on the battery than it needs to have. So I don't use it as much as I used to with my Bluetooth keyboard, and I'm charging it a lot more. And so I'm thinking, now's the time to get a new phone I'm looking at either the 12 or the 12 Pro. I think the 12 would be okay, but the thing about the Pro that interests me is the LIDAR or LIDAR or however they say it, just in case that would develop into anything that would allow adaptive apps that would help blind people. Usually what we do is I get a new phone and Dan gets my old one because a phone isn't as big a deal to him as it is to me. I'm trying to encourage him to maybe look, since this one's battery is getting so undependable, I'm encouraging him to look, if not at a new phone, maybe at an, a previous generation like an 11 or even a new 10R, um, that would you know he could start with from scratch uh rather than inheriting a phone that issues with its battery and that has been kind of quirky lately my current 10r will probably p- be paid off i don't remember if it's this month or next month so i'm going to have to get in after the bill updates i'm going to have to get in and uh take a look and see we're we're thinking of maybe changing carriers maybe getting like an unlocked phone and then trying out uh, other carriers with our unlocked phones and and that way we can we can stay or leave or whatever
0: it is a shame peggy that you feel you need to get an iphone particularly because you're having these ongoing bizarre issues with the apple watch and i know that you've referred to these on previous episodes of the podcast Because essentially what we're doing is rewarding a company who's given us a product that is causing us trouble. And that does seem quite counterintuitive. I think that one of the reasons why I bought an Apple Watch Series 6 when I might not otherwise have done so is because I was having some really weird battery issues with the Series 5, which have now transferred to the Series 6. So it clearly was never related to the Series 5 hardware. I think I am making some progress with that, knocking on the wood, and I will report more on this next week and let you know whether I have or not. Still, I'm sure you'll enjoy the phone and you make a really good point about the LiDAR. Eleanor is in touch and she has ordered an iPhone 12 Pro upgrading from the iPhone 8. So you'll see some significant performance improvements and, of course, some other benefits as well. So that 12 Pro will be in your hands soon. And of course, anybody ordering one of these new devices, I'll be really interested, as will many of our listeners, in what you think of them. No new iPhones for us, says Kathy Blackburn. I have an iPhone 8 and Audley, her husband, has the SE 2020. 5G is not an attraction for us. We prefer the discreteness of fingerprint ID. The iPhone 12 models have nothing to offer us. More comments coming in on the subject of self-driving vehicles. Andy starts us off for this week. He says, being a broadcast engineer and IT specialist, much of my job entails diagnosing and fixing what fails to work correctly. This can happen because of equipment failure or even incorrect assumptions on the part of the writers of software. I would love to be able to use a car that drives itself but I would probably watch the AI development and accident history carefully before allowing myself into such a vehicle without a sighted person in the driver's seat. Carrying your crowdsource point into the the toddler-in-the-road scenario, if I were in the first car on the scene, the AI would have three choices. Hit the kid, go over the cliff, or slam on the brakes and run whatever evasive maneuvers it could. If the car behind me was also smart, it could learn about what mine is going to do as soon as the decision was made. There would be less of a chance of a pile-up because the second car would not be reacting to what mine does. It would already be making its own decisions about how to react. What a glorious future to look forward to. Thank you, Andy. Tim says, I am convinced that self-driving cars will be much safer than human drivers, although it may take longer than we originally believed. But there will be always accidents and deaths. You will probably not own a self-driving car in your lifetime because it is politically easier to deal with human drivers killing a 100 people than it would be to deal with machines killing 10 people. Even if self-driving cars would save 90% of traffic victims, political considerations will stop their development in its tracks. I hope I am wrong about this, because humans are the worst possible drivers. Even a bad robot will do better, and an improved robot will do much better. Of course, our grandchildren will have self-driving cars. It is just a matter of decades rather than years. Thanks so much, Tim. I intend to be around to see it. And Bruce Taves is back, he says, first of all, thank you for letting me have my say on the subject and responding in a very fair way about it. I have a few responses to your response. No, I would not have said that landing on the moon was an impossibility. We had space travel, albeit rudimentary. Going to the moon was more about mathematics than anything else, and by that time, we had advanced mathematics, and we knew already that computers were and are at their best with math and tasks that can be accomplished with math. Here's an example of a quandary that I wouldn't want to entrust to a machine. In 1997, we had unprecedented flooding in Manitoba. It created all sorts of unprecedented driving conditions. We were in a van driving to my parents for Mother's Day. The detour situation was confusing, and another van got into a collision course with us. The driver couldn't avoid hitting us, and it had to make a split-second decision where to hit our van. If he hit my door, I would most certainly get hurt, possibly fatally. But if he aimed for behind me, there were kids in the back of the van who could get hurt, possibly fatally the driver made the right choice and aimed for my door. Thankfully, I'm pretty sure anyway, my injuries were not fatal. If they were, then we have a discussion for Coast to Coast AM. Anyway, do you want a computer deciding who lives and who dies? I still believe that self-driving cars will need a whole new type of computer technology, one that as yet has not even been born. You mention cloud technology advising of washed-out bridges and the like. Can you really imagine auto manufacturers working together on what information they'll share? Would Google going places cars be willing to pay Apple iDrive 30% of royalties to share data? And to go back to my personal life model, do you want the potential privacy violation of having your car report to the world who's in it? That would throw the booming business of adultery into turmoil. Thanks, Bruce. Let me unpick some of that. Regarding your 1997 example, I would say you would be much better off with a computer making those billions of calculations. You were very fortunate that you had a human in that other van who had the presence of mind to make the right decision. But that's the luck of the draw. Whereas with a computer scenario, that can think many times more quickly than the human brain and completely rationally, it would know precisely what to do. And what's more, it may be able to send signals to the other van, which would also be self-driving. So I think the question that I would also ask is, would that incident actually have occurred at all if both vehicles were self-driving and communicating? Regarding competing manufacturers communicating with one another, that's exactly what governments and regulations are for. There would have to be a standardized system, just like there's a standardized system for electricity, for example. When you go to a country, you don't have to think, I wonder which voltage or which wall outlet I'm going to encounter today, because there's legislation and regulation that governs what is acceptable in a given country. So when you're in a particular country, there would be a protocol that all self-driving car manufacturers would have to comply with. And I have no doubt that legislators would make sure that that happens. Regarding the privacy implications of knowing who's in a vehicle, well, that bird has flown a long time ago. There are apps like Find My on the iPhone. Google has equivalents. There's a cross-party app called Life 360. It is pretty easy now. And of course, there's cell phone triangulation So with a search warrant, police can see whether you're in a vehicle with a particular person due to cell phone triangulation. So that ship, I'm afraid, has sailed to mix my metaphors. And finally, just coming back to the moon analogy, although you say that you would not have thought that going to the moon was impossible when Kennedy made that great speech in 1961 because we already had space travel, even though it was rudimentary, I'd point out the exact same situation is true of self driving vehicles today. Not only are self driving vehicles being tested, people are riding in them. In certain states in the United States, you can now get into vehicles from Lyft, for example, that are self driving. There are people who will be listening to this podcast who have done it. So I would say the moon analogy is really appropriate. It's already being done. Self driving cars without a person in the front are driving people today nevertheless carol Ashton says it'll never catch on i tell you the self-driving car thing will never happen what she wants is a robot a robot that has a range of functions including driving you places so it would be i guess in the driver's seat that's what i understand carol wanting and then it would drive you places i suppose some of those ethical dilemmas that we've been discussing would still apply in a scenario like that
5: jonathan mosen Mosen at
6: Large Podcast Hello Jonathan and fellow Mosin at Large listeners, it's Gary I went to a school for the blind um, throughout all my schooling And I was a weekly scholar In other words, I went home over the weekends and I was in, in the hostel during the week That was very good in terms of discipline and things like that It taught me a whole lot I'm not going to say that I was spoiled as a kid but I, I would have gotten away a lot more at home with th- things, certain privileges, etc cetera, etc, cetera. whereas in the hostel you can 't just go to the fridge and grab a cold drink, for example, you need to wait for the designated times and the tuck shop opens and buy yourself something if you wanted to drink something you, dr- you drink water, for example, at home, there was always that luxury of opening up the fridge that 's just one little example of you know not always getting what you want being a scholar that went home on weekends I was exposed sociably to sighted people all the time as well as when I was growing up before I went to school I'd never met a blind person before I went to school so I think that helped me develop socially as well as physically in the sense of orientation and mobility um, there were a lot of uh, the kids that only went home four times a year which was uh, when we had our school holidays, the one was a month holiday and the December holidays, that was six weeks, and your March and September holidays were 10 days each. Now, this is probably going to raise a couple of hackles here when I say this. A uh, lot of the hostel kids they were in the hostel all the times except for the holidays are not as independent, if I can put it like that, sociably and orientation-wise as what we are that we're going home of weekends and the day scholars. They were in their dormitories, in school, in that little comfort zone in their box, if I can put it like that, and put them out in the world and they were lost. They didn't quite know where to go, how to do things, even social skills, how to talk to people, where to look, or if you know, where to look at them, looking away when they're speaking to them, as somebody mentioned earlier on little habits like rocking or hands in the eyes, which was never stopped at the school itself. Um, the problem I've also, I've also got it was called the Institute for the Blind, which just sounds wrong to me. I don't like that word institute. Institute I compare with people that are, I don't know, mad or insane or something like that or not quite with it. And I feel that is, that is the wrong way to look at it. I am very glad that I was a weekend scholar and I was also privileged enough to go to college after I'd done my schooling where I was the only blind person and everyone treated me normal. They either treated me like nothing was wrong, like I was just one of them, or else a lot of them didn't know what to say and they would kind of avoid me which was fine because then I would uh, engage with them and get them to realize, but hey, I'm just like you. I'm studying like you are. I have the same interests, et cetera, et cetera. And it opened up their eyes in a sense when I would find the bathroom on my own or when I would walk somewhere on my own and – get things done and all that. And I must be honest, at that stage, my Braylon Speak 2000 was a lifesaver. That was my note taker. I did have to have some extra tuition with things like they would they would draw graphs on the board. I would have to have someone just explain it to me and give me a hand with that. And there was a fellow student that was very nice about it. He would actually come to the house and just help me with a few things afterwards. So I did need a little bit of extra coaching in that regard. But other than that, it was plain sailing. And um another topic about the self-driving cars. At this moment, I wouldn't get one. But I think you, you make a very valid point, Jonathan, that in time, as things develop, there'll be less chance for error i definitely will go for one i think my wife is frowning at me at the moment because she will be very frightened if i do that sort of things but i think if majority of the cars on the roads were self-driving i think there would be less accidents because computer error is far less than human error Um, you must just be careful that something doesn't break in the computer and then you're obviously going to have a problem. But, I mean, sometimes things fail and people lose electricity, etc. And you have to make a plan. So, yes, things can happen. Things can go wrong. But with everything in life, something can go wrong, whether it's human error or not.
0: Thank you very much, Gary. And, of course, you can hear Gary G on Mushroom FM with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you can check the Mushroom FM schedule to find out when he's on. He's everywhere, I tell you. He's Dawn in Sydney who says, I went to a school for the blind all the way. My teachers were very innovative and I received a very good education. My ideal setting would be for sighted children to go to blind schools, which would give them the experience of mingling with other blind students and afford blind students an opportunity for socialization. I don't know whether this would ever happen realistically, but it would be my dream situation. Thank you, Dawn. Your dream came true here in New Zealand. As I've said during this discussion, I was mainstreamed for much of my schooling, but for the beginning of it, I did go to a school for the blind for the first few years. And we did have times where sighted students would visit our school. And we did make some friendships that lasted and some of those students revisited. So that's a really interesting idea. And it would be an opportunity for sighted students to learn about Braille other alternative techniques for living in the world, it would be a very instructive scenario. Hi, Jonathan says Brian Borowski. The latest updates to Narrator are a big improvement and they certainly make most of the Microsoft software accessible, as you point out, Mail, Word and others. There was an implication that somehow open source software is insecure. That is certainly not the case isc's software provides name and dhcp services to most users on the internet apache powers the web linux powers almost everything google's cloud amazon's services your echoes your tv the victor readers all cisco routers most corporate firewalls android phones go to about and see what's there most of microsoft's cloud services and on and on One could say the internet is not secure, but for the most part, that is not so. Microsoft is a major contributor to open source software. As of the last couple of years, they've contributed the largest amounts of code to the Linux kernel of any company. This is not to say that proprietary stuff is not good. It is, and it provides many a living and a job that they might not otherwise have. I use both, and users should take advantage of whatever is needed to get the job done most efficiently. The only problem is that some of the proprietary software is very expensive, and if users are funding this, financial considerations are an issue. Thanks very much, Brian. I certainly take the point about the use of open source software in a wide variety of settings. I also maintain very strongly that a decent society will make sure that a blind person has the technology that they require to be able to compete on equal terms with their sighted peers. And I do worry that some of these solutions, that while effective in certain environments may not be the best solution for some more complex or proprietary environments, are not being made available Because the people making the purchasing decisions don't understand the difference in capabilities of the products. So I think we've just got to watch out as blind people, particularly blind people who advocate for this, that somehow people think that there isn't value to be gained or equality to be gained in some people having access to those proprietary solutions that will help them do the job best. Best. It's another edition of what Christopher Wright writes, and today he writes quite a bit. He says, Hi Jonathan, as usual, I'm not impressed by Apple's announcements. The iPhone 12 is boring and doesn't include USB-C or Touch ID. I wouldn't be surprised if the lightning port is still using USB 2.0, which is beyond absurd. This is inexcusable in a product that costs so much. Just breaking away from the email to say that I know there is a Lightning to USB 3 adapter in the store, Christopher, so that would suggest to me that the Lightning port is capable of USB 3 speeds and actually has been for some time. Christopher continues, I also find it absurd the wall charger is no longer included. The person who thought that was a good idea should be fired, in my honest opinion. I expect a little more, considering how much they charge for these phones. The 2020 iPhone SE is much better value for money, and I would consider it if my 6S wasn't working as well as it is. I don't have much to say about the HomePod. It's about time they released a cheaper model. Sadly, they're not even close to competing with Alexa. I don't want a device that's primarily locked into the Apple ecosystem. It's good they're finally opening it up to more services besides Apple Music, but my response is still meh. Meh." Amazon offers cheaper devices that can do far more than Siri. It's typical Apple proprietary behavior. There's nothing innovative here. I love the idea of vehicles that drive themselves, but I have two concerns – Will the interface be accessible? It's great to say the car will drive itself, but if the interface to operate it consists of an inaccessible touch screen, it's a paperweight as far as I'm concerned. Gee, Christopher, you could weigh down a lot of paper with a big motor car, I would think. I hope he says this is being considered during production. These vehicles should be accessible to everyone regardless of disability. Yes, it is being considered, Christopher. Waymo, for example, has been testing directly with blind people, and we'll talk about that on the podcast in the near future. There are blind people testing this and pointing out any issues. So it is a happening thing, absolutely 100% certainly. He continues, as much as I criticize Apple's actions as of the last four or five years, I congratulate them on getting their accessibility philosophy right. Accessibility should be built into all mainstream products, and Apple has done a fantastic job, showing the rest of the world that this is possible. My second concern is security and planned obsolescence. If these cars have computers that will presumably connect to the internet, security should be top priority. The last thing I want is someone with malicious intent remotely bricking my car, making it crash, etc. I would also expect these vehicles to be supported for a substantial amount of time. I don't want to get my shiny new car, only to abandon it in a short five or six years because the computer in it has been deemed obsolete by the manufacturer. My earlier concern of security comes up again. I don't want to be using a vehicle with unpatched software that could be hijacked by nefarious people. See, Christopher, they could hack into your car and send it to Cupertino, where you would be reprogrammed, I tell you, for your heresy. (laughs) Anyway, I'll I'll continue with email. Your point about these vehicles being used as a service is a very interesting one. This could potentially get around my concern of security since you would always be guaranteed to have a reasonable up-to-date vehicle at your disposal. This would probably work out better for me since I don't tend to travel very many places anyway and thus wouldn't have as much reason to purchase a vehicle when I figure someone else can take most of the cost associated with maintaining it. I don't really care about owning a car I just want it to take me from point A to point B as quickly and efficiently as possible. It would be worth it just for the time savings alone. I get very frustrated waiting on paratransit vehicles that are late for whatever reason because they're used to transport multiple people to different destinations, the driver is late for some other reason, etc. I also don't really like buses because they must run on their schedule. I want to go somewhere when I want to go, and I'd rather not wait on someone else. This is the great thing about Uber and Lyft. Sadly, they're very expensive, so I wonder if a similar service operated by self-driving vehicles would be significantly cheaper. Perhaps it would be since there'd be no need to pay a human. Narrator is quickly becoming a viable screen reader. It's fantastic to see Microsoft's progress and I hope it continues for many more years to come. Regarding NVDA, there is a version available in the Windows Store. While it has some restrictions, it may get the job done. Alternatively, it may be worthwhile to direct IT to the NV Access corporate page, which provides a lot of good information about using NVDA in a corporate environment. It's worth noting that NVDA can run in a portable mode. This may be something else to consider. It's also extremely useful to carry it around on a USB drive or CD. This will enable you to access any computer simply by connecting your portable media and running the screen reader. It is self-contained, doesn't require administrative rights to run, and doesn't modify the system it's running on, as far as I'm aware. I think the thing there, though, Christopher, is that most computers these days don't have CD drives. And those environments that have security concerns won't let you plug any thumb drive into any USB port. He concludes, you shouldn't need to reformat your hard drive unless Windows is seriously damaged. Having said that, I find backing up my important data and doing a complete format once a year keeps my computers running smoothly. I must stress the importance of backing up your important data before doing this. You should always be doing this, but it's important because a complete reformat erases everything on the drive. The operating system and programs you run aren't nearly as important as your music, videos, pictures, documents, and other important files. Software can be replaced, repaired, or reinstalled, but your data cannot. While it takes more time to configure Windows and install all your programs, I believe it's worth it, particularly if your system has been running for several years. You'll find you have more available disk space, weird errors you may have experienced will most likely disappear, and your computer will generally run faster and or better. I find it useful to do this when Microsoft releases a new major version of Windows 10. God, that's every six months. It gives me an excuse to start over from scratch. It's also worth noting that I do this on all my devices, regardless of the operating system. Thanks, Christopher. I've always said there's nothing in life a format C colon at the command prompt can't fix.
7: Hi Jonathan Mosin, it's Kyle Cogan from Australia. We've got elections coming up in our council areas in the town of Wangaratta, Victoria. And our election council election is by postal vote this year because of COVID. We can't go to a polling booth or anything to vote so we have to have our votes in by next Friday, the 23rd of October. And we either send them or we hand them in by that date but accessible voting machines there wouldn't be as much demand for them in Wangaratta because there aren't many blind people in Wangaratta doing it over the phone is secretive and independent and we can have our say but each time we vote at a polling booth it's very hard to be discreet when there's such a crowd of people and this is not okay. If there were voting machines that allowed us to vote independently and we had headphones, we could do it. But with the current government we've got, if we go to an election in two years' time, we don't want the government that's a piece of soup to get back in after the handling of COVID's response. With numbers coming down, things need to change. Our are survived a no-confidence motion against him. But the way the government's handled the COVID response has been absolute soup.
0: More thoughtful thoughts from Debbie Armstrong. I did a talk for one of ACB's community... What, Amy Coney Barrett? Oh, that ACB. Right, right, I get it now. It's all very confusing when you see ACB on the news and you realise they're talking about Amy. Mm. Anyway, I'm sorry. I I did a talk, she says, for one of ACB's community calls on becoming an effective online learner. I've taken about 30 online courses and worked in Disabled Student Services for 19 years. I spent several days thinking deeply about my talk, and I came up with something that has, I believe, never been mentioned quite this way. There are four factors that influence your experience of accessibility on a site, especially when it comes to distance education. Item one, your knowledge. Your ability to use your screen reader – Especially its more advanced features will influence your opinion about whether the site is accessible. If you know how to do things besides hit the up arrow, down arrow, and tab, you'll discover that sites that seemed previously impossible to navigate might still be tedious but doable. I was taking a Spanish course with one of those new fangled, born accessible digital textbooks, supposedly. The diagrams, photos, and charts were all described, but I kept running across assignments in this textbook without picture descriptions, and the assignments depended on one knowing what was in those pictures. I finally figured out that each page with a short description contained the description in line, but for a long description, there was a link labeled D. Why it was labelled with a simple D, I do not know. But selecting that link brought up a second page in its own window with a complete description of the image. This was where my lack of knowledge contributed to my ignorant belief that the book wasn't accessible. In fact, it turned out to be the most accessible textbook I ever had the pleasure of studying from. Another experience I had was with Target, NFB had worked with Target to make their site accessible and it had recently gotten the NFB stamp of approval. So why was I struggling to find my shopping cart? I eventually realized the cart was a link to a number in parentheses such as seven, denoting my cart with seven items in it. After overcoming that obstacle of confusion, I had no more trouble with Target. Item two, your support system. If you can use magnification, have a friendly neighbor to describe unfamiliar screens, or a classroom aid, you can cope with material that might be less accessible to others. If you are proactive and are downloading the slides that will be shown by the instructor on shared screens, and if you aren't shy to ask for an alternate assignment when you can't do something online, then you'll fare better than those who are less assertive about their needs. If you use your phone or digital recorder to note exact error messages and the steps you performed to cause the problem, you'll get much more effective tech support. One often overlooked source of technical help is your local amateur radio club. Hams are overgrown Boy Scouts, often itching to do their good deed for the day why not give them a chance to diagnose your technical ills? If you spread your requests for help through a robust network of volunteers, friends, family, co-workers, and even staff at your agency or college who get paid to help you, you'll find you aren't wearing out your welcome and you'll get more assistance than if you glom on to one person. Even sheltering in place Zoom gives us the advantage of quickly calling a sighted friend to ask them to control our computers for a minute to perform a quick drag and drop. Item 3. The LMS or the CMS. Online courses are hosted on an LMS, Learning Management System, and websites nowadays mostly are hosted on a CMS, Content Management System. Some of these are accessible and some are not. So, When you are researching the one giving you trouble, find out if the platform containing that site has access issues first. Ask what system the site is running on. Research on the web what they say in their accessibility statement. Watch out if they do not have an accessibility statement. If there's a community forum, poke around and see what people are saying there about accessibility. If the organization is using an inaccessible content management system and you have evidence beyond your own frustrated experiences, complain with plenty of facts. Item 4. The content. An individual instructor or designer chooses what content to put up in a site. If that content is camera phone pictures of textbook pages, even the excellent JAWS OCR may not be able to read them accurately. PDF files vary from super accessible to impossible to OCR. And in my talk, I discussed why this happens and what you can do about it. In general, simply ask for the source document. Word documents and PowerPoint slides are accessible if their content is mostly text-based. Ask the person who provided that content, such as an instructor, to save their content as text. And what's missing will be what is not accessible to you they are saving it as text not for you but for themselves so they won't need a screen reader to easily see what you, the screen reader user, sees. If your contact is with an open, friendly person, you want to stay polite and encouraging yourself so as not to alienate a potential ally. You can ask that person to meet you on Zoom so you can show them what's not working. The process of making an inaccessible document accessible is called remediation. If you cannot get the source document, ask if these documents can be remediated for you. Larger organizations will also have a curriculum and content designers who often have training in accessibility, even when your own instructor does not. So be sure to talk to that person as well. A content designer may have a fast fix for materials you cannot access. I had a lot more information in my talk which eventually will appear in ACB's podcast listing for Community Calls. The people organizing their podcast feed are volunteers, so they have to find time to do this valuable work, and it can take a while for things to appear. Keep watching their feed if you want to hear the entire thing. What a superb quality contribution to the show. Thank you, Debbie. And because we have so many superb contributions from Debbie, this came through a while ago. So it's very likely, I would say, that Debbie's full talk is in that ACB podcast already. Whether you want ACB confirmed or not confirmed, check it out. I'm sorry, I'm getting my ACBs confused again. Mosin
8: at Large Podcast.
0: Jessica Dale is back in touch and she says, I'm in the middle of my second free trial of one Password." I have it set up on my iPhone, iPad, Mac, L Braille and Braille Note Touch. Well, you are living the high tech dream, Jessica. I cannot get my items exported from iCloud Keychain using the tools available with the MRC converter suite. Can you help? Sadly, in a word, Jessica, no. This is not something that I have attempted. I did a quick Google to see if I could find a nice piffy answer to give you. And it does appear that there has been some conversation on the 1Password forum about using a script. Now, that obviously works for Mac OS if you have access to that, and you clearly do. But I didn't go into a lot of detail to find out how you do it. I would suggest keep Googling, perhaps contact 1Password's tech support, which I have always found very helpful. But failing that, perhaps the brains trust That is, the most in-at-large audience can come to the rescue. If you have exported from iCloud Keychain and then imported into 1Password, perhaps you can let Jessica know how it's done. And on the subject of 1Password, here's Richard Bartholomew. He says, Hi Jonathan, I listened to your demo of 1Password with interest. Since I looked at this manager a couple of years ago and at that time decided not to continue with it as I found the facility to import my passwords from my existing software slightly confusing, and I ran out of patience. However, what I will say is that 1Password support were extremely good, even to the point of extending my evaluation period. For a few years now, I've used KeyPass, that's spelt, by the way, K-E-E, Pass, all one word, which is an open source piece of software which stores its encrypted database locally. You can use KeyPass across platforms, well, Windows, iOS and Android anyway, but it requires you to store the database on a cloud service like Dropbox or OneDrive. The benefit of this is that you are not dependent upon cellular or internet connectivity at all times as the database will be on your device. Although KeePass has consistently got good write-ups, I've still always felt slightly uncomfortable with it, given that it's open source. Am I right in assuming that if, for any reason, you don't have internet connectivity, you have no access to any of your details? This may seem academic, since generally, if you use a password, it's going to be with an online service, so no internet, no online service, but may not always be. For example, if you need to reset your router back to factory defaults, its password will also be reverted, obviously. And therefore, unless you have a note of the default password somewhere, your access to the internet will be scuppered. That's an interesting word, scuppered. Because you need to do some basic configuration first. Chicken and egg! Alternatively, you may need your credit card details for a telephone transaction. I'd like to start using 1Password since the family option is ideal, but I'm nervous of doing so. Do you know if there's any way to access your details if their site or your internet connection is unavailable, please? Thanks for the demo, as it's prompted me to take another look at it. That's a great question, Richard. Thank you for asking it, and good to hear from you. Yes, it's all good news from this point of view. When you log into 1Password for the first time... You've obviously got to enter your password and your secret key. At that point, it behaves like a cloud service, Dropbox, OneDrive, Google Drive, that kind of stuff. It will sync all of your data to your hard drive locally. It is obviously encrypted and stored behind what hopefully you've chosen as a strong password. That means that if you don't have internet access, for example, you put your laptop into flight mode or your internet's gone down. Then all your data is still available to you. So that scenario that you outline, maybe you need to do your router reset and get it back to factory defaults. And you've got the default router password in there that is absolutely doable with one password. Jose Ortiz is writing in and says, Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I listened to episode 74 of your podcast on one password and loved it. I've been a user of the iOS and Mac applications for several years but I've never used it on Windows because when I tried, it wasn't accessible. I have installed version 7.6.785 and everything works perfectly for me except the filling in of the identification fields on the websites. The process I follow is the one you did in your Twitter example. I open Google Chrome, load any website that I have included in 1Password, place myself in the field to write the user, and press the assigned hotkey, which is in my case, control, and then something that hasn't translated. The problem is that nothing happens at all. No pop-up window appears, no JAWS verbalizes any notification to me, and, of course, the fields are not filled in. In addition to version 7.6.785, I have the Google Chrome extension. I may have missed something because my English is not very good. Can you think of what the problem might be? Someone wrote to me with a similar question, and I don't know what the answer is, Jose, because all I can say is that I've installed 1Password on several machines that I use it on, Windows machines. I've installed it for Bonnie, and with the Chrome extension and the 1Password Windows 10 app installed... It just works. I haven't had to do anything special. The only thing I can offer is that, as Richard has said in the previous contribution, 1Password's tech support is really super. So if you're able to get in touch with them, they may be able to help you troubleshoot. If somebody else has seen this before, well, you've got the app installed, you've got the extension for your browser installed, but it doesn't pop up with the fields when you are on a web page and you solved it. Let us know and we can share the love. Who are the custodians of the priceless gift that Louis Braille left us? Well, they are the Braille authorities, at least in English-speaking countries. And every four years, the Braille authorities get together for the General Assembly of the International Council on English Braille. It is coming up, originally supposed to take place in person in London. Of course, COVID has intervened. Now it's a virtual event. If you're interested in the Braille code, then you can listen to the proceedings of the International Council on English Braille, either live as it happens or by way of a podcast. The person who's making all of that happen is Matthew Horspel. He's in the UK and he joins us now. Hi, Matthew. Good to have you on the
9: podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to be here.
0: Some of this is sort of a bit pointy, pointy head stuff, isn't it? All the kind of intricate things that they talk about when they get together to discuss Braille, but it's important. And it impacts the lives of blind people who feel passionate about Braille.
9: Yes, Um, a lot of this stuff is fairly high level that we'll be talking about. The General Assembly meets every four years and then in the two years, you know, in the the middle of those four years, two years on from the General Assembly, there is a midterm executive meeting face to face. But a lot of the very detailed work of ICEB, like the UEB code, um, especially now the UEB code is pretty stable, happens by email via something called the Code Maintenance Committee. So this General Assembly, we're not going to be talking about day-to-day coding problems. What we are going to be talking about is ICEB policy and um, interesting things that people have done with UEB. There's sort of a 50-50 split between ICEB business and sort of academic papers, if you like, and there's a a wide range of academic papers on various subjects that will be discussed. Who was likely to be interested in
0: this? You know, what would prompt me to listen?
9: Probably not beginner brailleists. We're going to be talking about Braille from the point of view of somebody who already knows Braille. So, if you're involved in teaching Braille or producing braille uh, you know transcribing and things like that it's a a very useful conference for you to listen to if you're a braille enthusiast and that's what i was and that's how i got involved in all of this to begin with who really wants to know how braille develops and gets to know some of the movers and shakers in the braille landscape uh, then it's a useful conference for you to come to or just if you're interested in just how this industry works obviously there's been a renaissance in recent years in some pretty innovative
0: braille technology. Does that form any part of the discussion at the General Assembly looking at the latest tech?
9: Yes, so not on the policy side, but on the papers. There's quite a few papers uh, on technology. There are six papers on technology and Yes, a lot of those papers actually talk about various aspects of Braille technology, not necessarily about specific pieces of equipment, uh, but there's papers, for example, on automated Braille production and ways in which hard copy differs from electronic copy. So, for example, uh, hard copies have volumes and electronic copies don't necessarily need to have volumes. So there are papers that are exploring issues like that. Because that's one of the ongoing
0: discussions, isn't it, that... On the one hand, you need to be able to read Braille efficiently and at, at good speed and get the information that you want, but then there are occasions when you have to know information about the way things are formatted because that has significance. And I think one of the, the challenges of Braille has been that perhaps those of us who do need to write really good-looking, well-formatted documents have had to work pretty hard to understand some of these format conventions that make a document look good in the sighted world? And how do you represent those efficiently without compromising readability?
9: Yeah, absolutely. It's a hugely heated debate, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about internationally, but certainly at a UK level, there's Those are people who will say, oh, well, we don't need all of this bold underline, italics in all of this formatting is just clutter. And why did UEB have to mess up my Braille beyond all recognition? And then there are those who are studying, uh, who, like you say, need to be able to produce print documents and need this information. And then there's the debate on top of that about how, well... These signs exist now in UEB, but screen readers don't always display them properly. And particularly uh, from a a back translation point of view, um, does it always work reliably? If you type the bold sign in Braille, does that come across? You know, I know on some Braille devices you can use the bold sign in Braille, but it won't translate into bold in the document.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you guys in Britain are unique as far as I'm aware, because It's still a pretty lively debate about whether you should use capital letters or not, isn't it?
9: Well, there are some diehards, aren't there? There are always going to be diehards. Um, Yeah, in certain parts of the Braille landscape in the UK, that debate is still raging. I think, by and large, people are starting to get used to UEB now. Um, But we're a stubborn lot, us Brits. And so if something happens that we don't agree with, then we don't adopt it and we keep making noise about it. So what is the status at the
0: moment? Are capitals optional in UK Braille, or is the official UK Braille standard now to use them?
9: No, well, the official UK Braille standard is UEB, and capitals are not optional in UEB, therefore capitals are not optional in the UK. We have to use them, but we can't control what people do in their handwriting. And so I'm sure there are plenty of brailleists out there who are still not using capitals. There are people secretly, surreptitiously not using capitals in the privacy
0: of their own home. I actually have Brits recommending to me that I could save a lot of space and read more efficiently if I would only go into my screen reader settings and turn off capitals. And I still find that extraordinary. What do you think the implications of this are? Have there been problems with blind people functioning in the workplace, communicating with sighted people because they've read so much material as young people without capitals that they don't know when to use them.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're taught, aren't we? Well, I mean, I presume, aren't we? But I mean, (laughs) you know, I was certainly taught um, in school when to use capitals and when not to use capitals. I was taught to use them at the starts of sentences and I was taught to use them for proper names and various other edge cases like that. But the problem is... How do we know what constitutes a proper name? And, I mean, that might sound stupid. Of course, Jonathan is a proper name. Of course, Matthew is a proper name. I didn't realise until fairly recently that post office is considered a proper name. So you you know you walk down the high street and you've got the bank which could be any bank so it's not a proper name you you've got the the shop which is not a proper name because it could be any shop and then you've got the post office which must have a capital p and a capital o and I feel like a sighted person would pick that up because they would see signs uh, and read it in books and a a blind braille reader who's reading capitalized braille would pick it up in fact that is how I picked it up I was marking Some work and uh, some work from some staff braille courses that we were doing at the school that I used to work at, and a staff member had put post office with a .6p and a .6o. So yeah, we all get caught out by this. And what also happens is that there are blind people who use note takers to do their emails and. I really don't want to judge people for that. I mean, you know, you carry on and use a note taker if that's what you want to do. But these are blind people who have grown up not capitalizing their Braille. And so I've received emails from blind people where they've been typing in uncapitalized Braille because that's what they're used to. And of course, the note taker doesn't back translate the capitals. You know, it it, it leaves the whole thing uncapitalized. And so a very professional looking email just has no capitals in it anywhere. And you have gone to a lot of lengths to make sure that people can actually
0: tune in. Can we talk about, firstly, just listening to this? And is there a way for people to feed back in real time? Or is it predominantly just to observe the proceedings this year?
9: It's predominantly just to observe the proceedings. Um, ICEB has a Twitter account, and we do have a, a hashtag. It's hashtag ICEB. 2020. Um, so of course, you could feedback on that hashtag. But um, because of the nature of the General Assembly, uh, because it's virtual, there's there's lots of things going on that we're not really familiar with. And in addition to doing the stream, I'm also doing some of the technical support. So I didn't want to sort of promise that there would be a two-way dialogue and then not be able to keep that promise because something had gone wrong in the background. So yeah, by all means, uh, tweet on the ICB 2020 hashtag, and I'll pick it up uh, probably during the day and uh, and get back to you that way. But otherwise, it's predominantly a one-way experience.
0: You can listen live on the stream, I understand. And you're also doing some really nice podcast production. You were telling me that the podcast will support chapters so that people can really easily skim between different sections.
9: Yeah, that's right, because these sessions are going to be quite long. They're not going to be as long as a face-to-face conference um, because of the time zones, primarily. Uh, It's 8pm till 11pm in the UK that equates to something like 6am in Australia the following day so we can't really go earlier than that because the poor Australians I mean you don't want it's bad enough having to wake up at six in the morning you certainly don't want to be waking (laughs) up at five in the morning but conversely we don't really want to go later than that because the people from the UK and particularly South Africa where we don't finish till midnight uh, they want to go to bed so you know This would have been a five-day face-to-face conference in London, five days of probably about six hours a day. And we've now got five days of three hours a day. So the Mm. sessions will be fairly short. The sessions will be, you know, three to four hours, but that's still quite a long time. So there'll be chapter marks in the podcast. And the other thing that's happened is that some things that would normally be delivered Uh, you know, face-to-face live at the conference have been pre-recorded. So all of the papers that I talked about earlier on in the interview, all of those papers, the presenters of those papers, have uh, set up uh, pre-recorded versions of their papers. And the expectation is that attendees will have watched those presentations before they come into the conference so that all we need to do in the conference is the question and answer sessions and audio of all of those presentations will also be made available on the podcast feed so people listening on the podcast or on the stream really will be able to follow everything that goes on even though it's a condensed agenda how will people be able to hear that live stream so it's just a typical IceCast stream. If you're fairly technical, you'll know what an IceCast stream is. The link to find it is live.brailcast.com, And on that page is a web player. It's a fairly primitive web player, but it does work if you want to listen online. And then there's a link to the IceCast stream if you want to listen in, say, Winamp or iTunes or uh, on smartphones and what have you. And the stream will just be a 128k mp3 stream in mono very good and what are the specific dates of the assembly so it starts on sunday the 18th of october in utc so that's 1900 utc on sunday the 18th of october Uh, and i say 19 to 22 utc and those times are the same for each day and the final day is thursday the 22nd of october
0: And if people would like to subscribe to the podcast feed, what do they search for in their podcast client?
9: They can search for ICEB General Assembly in podcast clients. And again, on live.brailcast.com, there's a link to all of the content. So you can view it in a web browser and a direct link if you want to subscribe to the RSS feed manually. Fantastic. Well,
0: congratulations on all you've done with the uh, preparation for making this ICEB conference, General Assembly, available to so many people. And I do hope people will tune in and or subscribe and uh, take a listen. There's a lot of interesting stuff, particularly for people who uh, care deeply about their Braille, as many of our listeners do. So I really appreciate that.
9: No, thanks very much for having me on the program, Jonathan. It's been great to talk to you.
1: In large podcast.
10: Hi, this is Rebecca. I'm going to give you my... Impressions of the Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. This is the 128GB model with 8GB of RAM, 128GB of storage, and i5 10th generation processor. It has a 12.4 touch screen and it weighs just over 2 pounds. The thinness of it can be compared to the MacBook Air. It's very thin, very light, very easy to carry in one hand, which I like. Now, this device has a headphone jack on the left-hand side, USB-A port, USB-C port. Anyone who has a whole bunch of USB 2.0 and 3.0 devices, go to Amazon, get some adapters. I found two of them for five bucks. has a USB C on one end and on the other end it has USB 2.0 or 3.0 port. Right hand side has a magnetic charger. Take it off the charger has the magnetic on the end. you just put it back on the charger by aligning it up to the port. Now in my I have narrator it. once it's properly lined up, it will just click into place and sometimes Navigator will let you know if it's charging. That's the simple layout of this laptop. Now the keyboard is very unique. It has on the bottom row your control key the FN key, the ALT key, spacebar, ALT key application key left arrow up and down arrow right arrow now the up and down arrows on this keyboard are slightly smaller than the left and right arrow keys now on this keyboard you do not have an insert key so you'll need to use your caps lock key as an insert key and you only have one control key that will take some getting used to I am not used to only having one control key. The unique feature about this keyboard is that narrator will announce when your function key is locked or unlocked. And I will explain this. If your function key is locked,
8: FN lock off, FN lock on,
10: you can use when the FN key has says lock on, if I press Alt F4,
8: Taskbar. Pane.
10: I will get to.
8: Shut down Windows dialog. Taskbar. Pane.
10: Please shut down Windows because I'm right now. I should be sitting.
8: Taskbar pane.
10: I'm on the taskbar pane.
8: Recycle bit.
10: Now I'm on the desktop. So when the FN key is on, I can get my F1 to F12 keys back.
8: FN lock off.
10: When... The FN key is off, and I try to do Alt-F4. Volume
8: level 98. Volume level 100.
10: Those seem to serve the Alt-F4. Now becomes whatever the OEM manufacturer desires. In my case, it just happens to be volume up.
8: FN lock on.
10: Now, you can leave the FN lock on, and you will have your standard function keys. The only problem is that Narrator seems to be the only screen reader that lets you know what the status of the FN key is. I have not gotten this to work with JAWS or NVDA. Now, getting back to the top row of keys, if go from left to right, you do have your escape key, and the F1 to F12 keys. To the right of the F12 key is the power button. It is in a little indented rectangular area. It's set off from the rest of the keys, has like a rubbery, very distinctive feel to it. It also serves as your fingerprint key when the laptop locks Or when you are trying to sign in using Windows Hello. There is no Face ID on this laptop. It is just a fingerprint ID. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I have a pen as well. To the right of this power button is your delete key. Again, three distinctive features to note about this keyboard. No dedicated insert key. Only one control key. And the FN key toggles between the pre-assigned keys from Microsoft versus the F1 through F12. I hope this is helpful. I like this laptop. It is worth it alone for the fact I can carry it in one hand and it's very light. I didn't mind buying extra adapters for the USB-C and I still get my headphone jack. I am going to explore how to get out of S mode using Narrator to so go to Windows Home mode.
8: Start window, at button, uh, Activation settings, System settings, Press right to switch preview. Setting, Settings window, Search box, Find a setting, Edit, Find a setting. Windows Update, one of eleven.
10: There are eleven options here. I'm going to go down to activation.
8: Delivery off Windows secure backup. Troubleshoot recovery activation. Seven of eleven. Selected.
10: Now we're in activation. I just press enter.
8: Link. Learn more about Windows activation. Link. Go to the store.
10: Now this is tricky. There are two options that go to the store. And there's another one that's for Windows. Home. In other words, if you want to get out of Windows Esmo to go to Windows Home. The other option is to buy the Windows Pro. And I want to activate Windows Home because that's free. So let's just explore this. I'm going to try making sure I hit the right button. So let's go shift tab back.
8: Link. Learn more about Windows at Link. Go to the store. Go to the store to switch to Windows 10 Home.
10: Okay what I did there is I tab until it says go to the store, then I use the caps lock and left arrow, and that's when you would go to the store to get Windows home. So I'm gonna activate this with enter.
8: Microsoft Store Win Windows 10, S mode switch published by Microsoft average rating of 1.0 out of 5 stars. Price free get button.
10: Okay, I'm going to press space on get
8: space.
10: Let's see what's going on. I'm going to hit the caps lock and right arrow.
8: Command not, av- command, command not available. Okay, let's try. Click up to move to new notification from feedback hub. Please tell up you're all set. Window, close, button, alt plus C. You have switched out of S mode and can now install apps from outside the store. Text.
10: Going to verify this by pressing the caps lock and right arrow key. It just told me that I was all set. And now I can't install basically any apps that'll work in Windows at this
11: point. Hello, Jonathan. It's Paul Paravano calling from the Boston branch. Now there are branches of the Heidi Taylor fan club. Uh, I wanted to comment on a couple of things. uh The autonomous vehicle uh, discussion that you had that was uh, excellent. There is a documentary that was uh, done about a year or so ago that I actually participated in, and along with one of the brothers from Car Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with a national public radio show called Car Talk, which was featured two brothers uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and it was a very popular show. But anyway, uh, they there was a clip in this autonomous uh, show, which is available from iTunes, maybe other places as well. But it's a documentary film all about autonomous vehicles. And they introduce, um, inter- interviewed some folks from MIT, and I actually got to go along for a ride in one of the autonomous vehicles, and... My sense is that I too would be anxious to have one, but I think we're further away from having them than people think. I was imagining three or four years ago that by 2020, I'd be driving a Tesla myself, but I just don't see it happening in the near term. And I work at a place that does a lot of research and a lot of the innovation That's used in autonomous vehicles, and my sense is that we're further away from that uh, the day when we will be able to go to a dealership and buy one. The ride in it was kind of slow. It was on a test track, so uh, nothing speedy or interesting, or you know, the kind of efficient way of getting around that one might imagine. It was pretty slow going, with a safety driver uh, in the car as well to sort of monitor what was going on. I also wanted to make a quick comment about education. I too was like others who've reported in was mainstream education. went to a Catholic school for a little while and then public school. And I do think that there were some advantages to doing it that way. I will admit that there are a number of blindness skills that I sort of wish I had when I finally went away to college. Um, I was able to pick them up, but it would have been nice to have them from the get-go. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Michigan and Uh, I don't think there were any other blind people nearby, at least none that I met, and certainly nobody to other than Braille, which I I did get good lessons, mostly from my mom, who bought a... um, Oh, and that was Braille with a capital B, by the way. don't want to miss that. Um, My mom bought a book off the shelf and taught me Braille when I was probably four or five years old, and then she took a slate and stylus and transcribed most of the reading materials that were used in my first and second grade. And interestingly enough, I, unlike many people who listen to you, I never quite learned how to use a and stylus, although she slaved over the Slayton stylus creating documents for me. They got me a Perkins brailer when I was maybe in second grade, so I lucked out big time, I think. And for my final item... I noticed that the Miss um, Heidi Taylor did another fantastic job with the Bose speaker, and I think that there's another one with uh, oh, and and yeah, the Bose speaker unboxing and the Apple event. But she did a terrific job. So did her father. But uh, anyway, Heidi did. A Great job. She asked for suggestions on a podcast, and I'm thinking that maybe how she uses social media, because I'm someone who does not use it very much, and I'd like to get more comfortable with uh, ways in which people use it. I know you use it a lot, but I'd like to know how Heidi uses it. And uh, maybe, I think if I remember correctly, she's involved in art and artistic activity, and love to know more about that. And then, of course, I don't know if you remember, but one of the big, massive Braille books that were hanging around when I was a kid was Living with Blindness. And I'm thinking that maybe Heidi could have a session on just that topic, because if my daughters uh, were to write a book or do a podcast about living with their old man, uh, it would be pretty interesting and uh, not all complimentary, I, I would add. Um, and it would be great to get, uh, Heidi Taylor talking about, uh, growing up with her old man who's become quite accomplished in his own right. Anyway, and don't forget, please about that slush fund that Heidi Taylor should have, because she does all this fantastic work helping us get, um, familiar with all these different cool toys and technology and, uh, tools of production and uh, uh, skills that she helps us with. So uh, I think she should have access to buying whatever she wants, I would say.
0: Well, that contribution is just so controversial on so many levels, Paul, that I really just don't know where to begin, except to say that Heidi is actually an electrical engineer by training. She's graduating as an electrical engineer in December. So. Maybe she could do some post-grad at MIT. You could set that up and then you could do the slush fund. See, that is the ultimate karma. The ultimate karma, I tell you, it will come back to bite you. You were talking about the Slayton stylus. We call them pocket frames here in New Zealand. And I should add that I was never taught to use one either. Some of the other kids during my schooling, I think, were taught. But I was always sort of doing other things. So I never learned it. And I went to the States, you know, to NFB and then later ACB conventions. And I would hear people just going, yeah, you know, really quickly with the Slayton Stylus or pocket frames. And I was pretty awestruck by that. And I have sort of taught myself a little bit uh, over time. But because I never learned it as a kid, I'm nowhere near as fast as some of the people I hear just beavering away with those things. But hopefully I've learned sufficient technology to make up for that. This email from Bev Powell, and it says, Hi, Jonathan, I hope you and Bonnie enjoyed your vacation. I'm writing from a small town in southwestern Ontario, Canada. Today, October the 12th, is Thanksgiving Day, second Monday in October in Canada. And I give thanks for you and your non-apologetic attitude for those things you value. I thoroughly enjoy the informative nature of your podcast. I find them educational and well thought out. Your honesty, humility and humor is very refreshing. I have several things rattling around in my skull and need to let them loose. First, I have RP and have lived in both the low vision and blind worlds. My comment is in regard to the inappropriate use of the word blind. There is a TV ad promoting a room deodorizer spray, and they express the word NOSEBLIND in their dialogue. I would think that using NOSE NUMB would be more accurate. Did you know that BLIND is an acronym? It stands for BEGIN LIFE IN A NEW DIMENSION. Second, I am not a beta tester, nor do I have any desire to do so. Very wise person. The petition which you initiated certainly generated lots of both positive and negative comments. From my perspective, I think it was a positive move. The petition may not have had any action on voiceover being turned off for two weeks on the iOS beta test. I think it more important that Apple is aware of our needs and think not to repeat such an inconvenience. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Thirdly, I am a good old boy who enjoys country music. Mercy! The old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so it follows, that good sound is appreciated by the ear and mind of the listener. About five years ago, I purchased a Bose 360 and thoroughly enjoyed its sound and portability. Its resonance is better if sitting on something wooden rather than a hard, smooth surface such as glass or metal. To my old, uneducated ears, I know what I like. I'll cease my griping and look forward to future podcasts. God be with you always. Well, thank you very much, Bev Powell. And I agree regarding the Bose. When we put it on a wooden surface where we were staying when we were holidaying in Queenstown, It really did resonate very well. So good on you for liking what you like. In the end, as the purchaser, as long as you like it, that's the main thing. And I think Bose do a really good job with their sound as well. Thank you also for your very generous comments. I really do appreciate that.
12: Jonathan, I was very amused by your uh, example of the the things that sighted people think we can do uh, vis-a-vis the driving example. Um, it struck me that um, often when you go through an airport, certainly here in the United States, you know, and I'm with a colleague or something like that, the TSA people won't talk to you, treat you as dumb, don't really believe you can walk independently, move independently, think independently. But then once you've gone through the scanner, they want to swab your hands for high explosive residue. And it always strikes me... You think I'm this stupid, but you think somehow at the same time I can be an expert bomb maker skilled in the arts of manipulating C4 explosives to be placed on aeroplanes. doesn't really compute.
0: Good morning, Jonathan, says Marissa. I'm not sure if she said it quite with that much enthusiasm, but I can imagine it. I wanted to ask your opinion, she says, on iCloud for Windows. Is this program or web interface accessible with JAWS? Are there any scripts one can install to make using iCloud easier for screen reader users? I was able to sign in without issues. However, when navigating the items such as mail, calendar, reminders, photos, etc., I could not do it independently. Appreciate the inquiry, Marissa. I can confirm that iCloud for Windows is really not the best I've never tried to use it for anything other than setting up sync. My primary reason for having iCloud for Windows on my devices is so that I can access my iCloud Drive. Our family has access to two terabytes of storage, and it is really nice when you've got apps that properly support iCloud Drive, such as audio apps, and they store data in iCloud Drive. For example, I can copy files into the sideloads folder of Castro and they just magically appear in Castro. If I make a recording in Ferrite or just press record, I can retrieve it from there. So it all just appears in Windows Explorer. You can also have your photos syncing and various other things syncing that I no longer find necessary in this age of IMAP and miracles and wonders. Setting that up is a bit of a chore, but it isn't impossible. And the way I set it up is to use one of the other JAWS cursors, and I can't quite remember whether I've had to use the touch cursor or just the regular JAWS cursor, but there's a checkbox, I believe it is above the item, sorry it's a bit vague, I don't really want to uninstall it and install it again, but I'm pretty sure there's a checkbox above the item in question that you can check to enable the various features, the syncing. Those things are a one off setup process. So, to be honest, what I would do in a situation like that, if you have access to Ira, you can make a five minute call, of course, for free. And I would put TeamViewer on my device and just have Ira set it up the way you want. And it'll be done in a couple of minutes. And it's effortless and a lot less stressful. It is a shame, though, that Apple, who champion accessibility so well in so many areas, can't set up something where we can just tab through that dialogue, that there are standard checkboxes and just get the job done. I think it's fair to say that someone at Apple is letting the side down a bit with the accessibility of this. Similarly, you'd have to say that the quality of the website is not a model of accessibility either, but it's been a long time since I looked. And after I got your email, I did take another look and it's much, much better than it was. I found that I was able to choose the app that I wanted to work with, such as Calendar, Find My Friends, that kind of thing, and find what I was looking for. When I went into the Find My Phone section, it wasn't clear to me where my phone was. I could be just not investigating carefully enough, but it looked to me like it found my devices, but it wasn't giving me a textual description of where my device is. That does trouble me a bit because the only time I can see myself playing with the iCloud website is if I had some sort of crisis situation and I had lost a device and I needed to track it down. So unless I had another Apple device like an iPad, as far as I'm reading it, I think I would need sighted assistance to determine where my device might be. So if anyone can comment on their experiences with iCloud outside of the Apple ecosystem, In other words, with the iCloud for Windows app or the iCloud website, by all means enlighten us. And thank you for the inquiry, Marissa.
5: Hi, Jonathan. It's Debbie Gillespie. A couple of comments and a question. First, I love the panel that you had for the Apple events the last two times you had them. The chemistry was great and the presentation was good. Very relaxed with a lot of geekdom thrown in for good measure, of course. But yet it was real life too. I thought that was really cool. My second comment is on the audio that you talked about on the TV networks these days. Very true. It sucks. It's funny how our quality has gone down since the COVID-19. And my question. I'm looking for a headset microphone that I can use on the PC. Preferably Bluetooth would be awesome. At least wireless. I'm currently using a Plantronics that I've had for about five years or so, but I'm getting tired of the wires. And I'm looking for something a little more slick, but I want the quality to be good. Any suggestions are welcome from yourself or other listeners.
0: Thank you, Debbie. Good to hear from you, and I'm glad that you enjoyed our coverage of the Apple event. It's been a long time since I've personally had cause to look for this, but I know that Plantronics used to do some really nice wireless headsets, that were not Bluetooth. There was a dongle that would plug into the USB port and you'd get quite a good range and the fidelity was good. But Bluetooth has come a long way in recent times, of course, with new and better standards. So I suspect there are some good quality Bluetooth headset options out there. So let's throw this open. She's after wireless. If you've got a wireless microphone headset that sounds good, what would you recommend for Debbie?